Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers again hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. And this is the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Get ready for 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the Stud. Please welcome the originator of the Studcast, the man who changed the podcasting world with the Super Studcast. We step back into the ring, we step back into time with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller, welcome back, Ron. What's up, man? Hey, man. I'm just uh, I'm just riding along, man. Just uh, having a good time, uh, watching out for hurricanes and <laughs> you know, uh, uh, and COVID, and uh, you know, just uh, trying to survive, trying to get through another week and and see what happens, you know. So, uh, how you doing, man? Man, everything everything's good. We were thinking the hurricane might come right up through where we are here in southeast Alabama. At one point, it said it might go through the the northern part, or we call the Big Bend area of the state of Florida. But at this point, it's just it's too soon to say. So, but it, but it could happen. So we're kind of keeping an eye on that thing too. Yeah, man. I, I guess we're going to have uh, we got a record number of hurricanes this year. We got a record number of deaths this year around the world. We got a uh, this year, I don't know, man. Uh, I, I'm pretty glad to yeah. see this one over and uh, see if we can't do better. <laughs> At in, some uh, point, there's going to be a scary movie called Welcome to 2020. But anyway, all right, we're getting close to Christmas. It never changes. It's always December 25th. And if you're looking for somebody who is a wrestling fanatic in your family or a friend, tnstud.com is where you start your Christmas shopping this year. And stud, you've got a ton of stuff in there. T-shirts in black and blue. You've got autographed copies of your new novel, Brutus, and a whole bunch more. Yeah, got the uh, the DVD packs, the Southeastern Continental 12 hours of DVDs that uh, 60-something matches. Every, Armstrongs, the Fullers, uh, the Goldens, the, the Riches, the, the Nightmares, Adrian Street, uh, Wendell Cooley. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Dirty white boy, Dr. Tom <laughs> Pritchard. Uh, wow. I mean, I never realized how many people I had wrestling for me until I sat and watched these things myself. And right. uh, this is really good quality. It's really good stuff. And uh, if fans would like to haven't got that, I think that'd make a great gift. If you've got, as you say, wrestling fans uh, that you're buying for that five pack, that DVD five pack is really good. And uh, obviously, uh, my book is doing well, thank goodness. Uh, I'm very, very happy with it. Uh, getting a lot of publicity out of it, 
In fact, just this past weekend, went uh, over to Tampa to see a buddy of mine, Mick Foley, do his comedy show, and he had read the book, and uh, and he gave me a great review while I was there on my book. So uh, we had a pretty good weekend, actually, in spite of the weather and a lot of rain. But uh, I guess we're pretty much ready to ride here But today, my man, if you are. Well, I'm going to saddle up as quickly as I can. I feel like I'm on a merry-go-round. I'm not not on a real horse, but we'll see what happens. But where, where are we riding to today, Ryan? Well, on today's training, we're going to wear those Booker hats, and we're going to take a look at, uh, at basically as how I did 1976 as a young Booker and uh, what might be in store for the future of Southeastern in the late part of 1976, where we are now, and on into the early part of 1977. We're going to talk about some of the angles. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the upcoming unusual special events that's going to happen between uh, November of 76 and on into probably February of 77. And we're going to talk about another world title match that's going to be coming in 1977 in the spring of 77 with a new champion. It's going to be a new champion. It's not going to be Terry Funk this time. And we're going to be focusing on the week of November 12th, 1976, this week. Uh, well, there's a great Knoxville card that week, uh, the TV of November 6th that promoted that card. We're going to talk about the attendance and the payoffs. And we're going to do something we haven't done in a while. We're going to actually take a real good look at the entire Southeastern week. We're going to cover every town for a whole week, the week of November 12th, 1976. Every place we wrestle, we'll talk about. The attendances there. Uh, we'll do. Uh, we'll talk about the total gross for that entire week. We'll talk about the payoffs the wrestlers got. So we're going to give uh, fans a lot more information today than what we've normally been giving them for a while. And then we're going to finish up with obviously the great learning tree today. And this one has two questions from a gentleman named Adam Thompson. He asks, other than the regular championship matches for your belts. Did you ever have different type matches that involved the belts or unusual things happening to your belts? Hmm. Uh, when I saw this question, we're going to be talking about something today that fits right in with this question. And there's something else that happened that was really a phenomenal event for Southeastern, kind of really got us our first big shot of publicity all around that part of the country. Wow. And that's going to be in that Learning Tree episode later in the show. It reminds me of, of one thing you've talked about with the belts, where you put a, you put them up on the pole, and one of you had to climb the pole to to get the belts down. So that's uh, that's we'll see if that's part of that. All right, sounds like a great one, Ron. We're all saddled up here, and we're about to put our Booker hats on. Mine doesn't fit just right, but we'll see how it works, and we'll see how you did in 1976 as a Booker, right? That's it, my man. So. Uh... You got a really good start right out of the right out of the starting gate today, man. Look at me. You're, <laughs> you're on the ball, man. So so speaking of today, that's where we're going to begin with our training. So today's training is going to take us on a pretty much an educational ride into the future of Southeastern wrestling. And uh, as, as you said, you've got your Booker hat on, man. And if it don't fit too good, you better pull it down tight. Because uh we're gonna we're gonna be doing a little ride here, man. So we're going to be finding out uh, how and why bookers do well, they, they, how they're doing in the present. Uh, they don't only have to be uh, doing a great job in the present. They've got to be looking into the future. And if they're not, they're not going to be bookers for very long. That's for sure. 
So we did something similar to this today's training in a stud cast about five months ago. I was looking back a little bit, and it was about five months prior to the huge October 10th, 1976 world title match with Terry Funk and I. And it was right after I'd received notice from the National Wrestling Alliance that I was going to get Terry Funk in October. And in that stud cast, we put on our Booker hats and we laid out the future for Southeastern Wrestling from basically about June 1976 until October of 1976, when the world champion was actually going to come to town. And uh, we're looking back and booking ahead. We're looking and booking ahead today. Uh, that was what bookers had to be doing if they were handling their jobs properly. Believe me, owners could tell whether or not the booker was doing that by simply looking at the crowds. And uh, I didn't—I never knew an owner of a wrestling company that couldn't pretty much tell you how many people he had and what money was in the house. So it was extremely important to them. Fans, whether they knew it or not, they could tell the same thing because they kind of lost interest, you know, and. And things just didn't seem to be as interesting as once in a while and not quite as exciting as it was. And when that happened, they just quit going for a couple of weeks or for maybe a few weeks. And whenever that happened to you as a booker, you got to that, uh, that you lost the big M, M word, momentum. And wow, when you lost momentum as a booker, you're in trouble mm -hmm. when you do that. Yeah. Uh, and it, when it happens, it, it means at least a few weeks, if you're a pretty good booker, getting back with people coming and picking those crowds up again. But, uh, you know, you got to do something pretty captivating for fans to make that happen, to start to fill those seats again. So if it didn't happen, someone was going to fill your seat. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to be looking for a job. Yeah, for real. So in October 1976, I'd long been planning this major angle with Terry Funk, the world title match. And uh, one where Garvin's going to get involved, and I figure he's going to have him jump off the top rope with his knee in my throat. And actually, he does that three times in that match, you know. And, uh, and my booking plan was to immediately follow that world title day with me and Garvin throughout the entire territory for about 10 weeks until the end of the year, to the end of December. Mm -hmm. But the throat injury, it kind of it sent me to the hospital and it put me out for a few weeks. So momentum right there was definitely slowed. I mean, I was afraid momentum was going to die completely. But uh, thank goodness it didn't happen. So the only good thing about uh, me getting hurt uh, was the fact that when it happened, Garpin gained a tremendous amount of heat from it. Uh, wow, he really got hot overnight, but uh, but he didn't have that powerful opponent that I was going to be for the next 10 weeks uh, because I'd, I'd been hurt. I couldn't wrestle, so he's got to wrestle opponents that weren't as over because I'd worked that long program to get this match with Terry Funk and a great angle in the match. Yeah. So in looking back, the only good thing that, that came from that injury was the fact that Southeastern could not get back into the Coliseum until the first Sunday in 1977, 10 weeks after that Terry Funk match before we can get back in the Coliseum. So luckily, uh, we, were being, we were in a smaller Jacobs building in Chill High Park, but it worked out well because I got hurt. That's a strange thing to say, but uh, if it hadn't happened and I had been in all those main events with Ronnie Garvin after that angle, 
We would have turned away thousands of people every Friday night for 10 weeks. It would have driven me crazy. I would have seen all those cars leaving that couldn't get in. <laughs> I don't know how I could have handled it. So uh, it kind of worked out that we're going to be back in that larger uh, Coliseum on the first week in January 1977. And we're going to be there every Sunday afternoon for the entire winter. So the injury was bad timing, but not being in the larger Coliseum, but it was good timing under the circumstances because, you know, I was hurt and we didn't need a bigger building than what we had. Right. So as a booker, I was prepared far beyond that first day back in the Coliseum on Sunday afternoon, January 2nd, 1977. Uh, I'm looking at that date in October and November of 1976. So let's take a look at the talent I had already scheduled for Southeastern that was going to be arriving after the Terry Funk match. Rip Smith, he was a potentially great young newcomer, man. And he arrived on October 22nd, 1976. A new heel gladiator, Jim Dalton. We talked about the gladiator thing a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and a wrestler manager named Big Bad John both started on November 5th, 1976. Bob Armstrong is going to be returning in the next few weeks on December 3rd to 76. My brother Robert is going to come back full time the next week on December 10th of 1976. And on the second day of 1977, I'm going to get maybe the best talent ever in Southeastern. I'm going to get the incomparable Mongolian Stomper. It's going to make wow. his debut on uh, January 2nd, 1977. And on January 9th, uh, our old buddy Norvell Austin is going to be coming back for another run. So uh, as a booker, I'm pretty proud of what I did and uh, who I had set up for 1977 winter. Wintertime, uh, my talent roster was strong, pretty darn strong. The next place uh, Booker could improve his crowds, obviously, was with the type of events he was going to have. Was there anything special he could do to pump things up? So. Here's what I had coming up for Southeastern fans starting in January 1977. On the second day of January, on a Sunday afternoon, Andre the Giant's going to make his second appearance in the Coliseum, and it's going to be for a special two-ring battle royal. Wow. <laughs> Those things are always big time, yeah, and you've got yeah. Andre coming in to, to even pump it bigger. Yeah. I got a World Junior Heavyweight Championship match on January 30th, 1977 with Nelson Royal, the World Junior Heavyweight Champion, and I'm going to put him in the ring with Jimmy Golden. They are going to have one of the greatest wrestling matches that uh, Knoxville would ever see. Uh, I got a beautiful pink Cadillac, and I got a tournament that's going to end on February 13th, 1977. The car is going to be given away on that night. And when that happens in that night, just like the match with Terry Funk, I got an angle that's going to happen after that Cadillac tournament. And after the car is won, it's going to be bigger than the tournament, what happens in, in that angle. So, and then I'm going to begin the spring of uh, 1977 with another NWA World Championship match. And this time, the champion's going to be Harley Race. So all in all, I think I had a very good year as a booker in 1976. I'll say, no doubt. I doubled my crowds in Knoxville and yeah. all of the surrounding smaller cities. I improved my crew dramatically during the course of 1976. I came up with and implemented some extremely strong angles, very strong angles. 
I improved the TV rating greatly over the year for another record year. The records just kept falling so far as the television audience growing. I had, for the most of the year, maintained Southeastern's momentum, and I set us up well, I think, for the winter of 1977. So, you know, as a booker, you find out it's an ongoing challenge. You can never relax. You can't rest on your results. It's always an onward and upward so far as the wrestling business is concerned. And if you didn't keep your eye on the ball as a booker, you were sooner or later destined to strike out and be looking for another territory to be working in. No doubt. And to me, it sounds like this Friday night, if that's when you're the big night is, this Friday night has got to be better than last Friday night, no matter what happened at the Coliseum, or, or this Sunday's got to be better than last Sunday. So that's I mean, that's a lot of pressure, but it, it sounds like uh, you had your talent spread out so that you had somebody new coming in on a pretty regular, every couple of weeks, you had somebody brand new walking in. Yeah, yeah, and that was, that was an extremely important part of being a booker. You had to have the connections. You had to know who was good. You had to pick the right talent. If you had the wrong guys coming in, you weren't going to help yourself. And thank goodness I had a, the guys I listed there. I've got that Bob Armstrong. I've got the Stomper. I've got mm-hmm. I've got some big name guys that I had no doubt were going to light things up. And uh, that's pretty much what happened. So as they came in, they were always on the TV show. They would go, "Oh wait, who's this guy?" Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's how you built them, and you you put them in there, and uh, then you. Once they got over a little bit, that's when you started to angle them and started to work these programs. That's cool. And that's kind of the way it was for a booker. That's how it worked. And, you know, and these today's trainings are kind of an educational tool. And, and I hope people will uh, understand, you know, this will maybe give you an idea of what it's about to be a booker, uh, what you have to do to make it happen. And, uh, and uh, it's, it's not an easy deal. And as you said, it's a pressure job, constant <laughs> pressure. For real. All right. Awesome job. Another great today's training. No wonder business was growing so fast for you. So where are we headed to next, Ron? Well, let's start with the card of Friday, November 12th, 1976. We're in the Jacobs building in Chai Park. Like I said, we're not going to be in the Coliseum until January of 1977. The opening match on that card was Rip Smith and Don Carnoodle against the Gladiator, the new Gladiator. That people don't know he is the new Gladiator, but he is. Jim Dalton, and the great Mephisto. Second match was a Texas death match with Jimmy Golden versus Louis Tillette. The third match was a Southeastern tag title match, two out of three falls with Kurt and Carl Von Steiger, the champions, versus Tor Tanaka and Mike Stallings. And the main event was a Southeastern title match, a coal miners pole match. You mentioned it a minute ago. Uh, we're going to have one, a coal miners pole match with the Southeastern belt on top of a 20-foot pole. Wow. The man who gets up to the pole and gets that belt and is able not just to get down with the belt into the ring, he's got to leave the ring with it, then he is champion. He don't have to beat his opponent. He just has to get the belt, get out of the ring with it, and he's the new champion. <laughs> Ron Wright against Ronnie Garvin, who was managed, obviously, by Big Bad John. That's a pretty good card right there. Okay, so you always do an amazing job. Are you going to break down the TV from six days earlier? I think it would have been Saturday, November 6th. Yes, you got your calendar out today, Dave. I mean, <laughs> damn, you're on top of it, you know. <laughs> you're exactly right, my man. You know, on Saturday, November 6th, 1976, we're at the studios of WBIR-TV in Knoxville. 
We had a fantastic TV the Saturday before. Last week, we, we, we talked about that in the last studcast. I thought it was a great TV. And we got another one this week because we're entering the very important TV rating month of November. And these November shows had a rock. And uh, as a young booker, I was learning how to roll them out there, by guys. So we were rocking and rolling a little bit. And when it came to November, I wanted to make sure we weren't playing the wrong tune. So this time, we're going to open up a little differently than most, this TV show. Uh, there's going to be a tag match. It happened last week, and we talked about it on the last show, that really had the studio crowd going crazy. It was Young Stars, Don Canoodle, and Rip Smith, and they wrestled the Southeastern Tag Champions, the Von Steiger Brothers, to a 15-minute time limit draw. Very unusual match on television to have a time limit draw. Later in that same show, the Von Steigers accepted the challenge from the two young stars that they made immediately after that match, that they wanted a 20-minute time limit match with the Germans next week, wanted to wrestle them again on the next show. So, you know, the Von Steigers go out there, and uh, they they just accept, not only did they accept the challenge, they said, let's just make it for the belts, too. It was the first of four weeks in a row of November TV ratings, and I decided to open this show with something different than the, than the usual great still shot openings that we'd been doing from videos that were shot the night before in the big arena. So I had the Von Steigers this time open the show at the set with Les with a still shot of the crowd from the studio Saturday before, all standing up and just going crazy watching this tag match that I didn't think would be nearly as good as it was. After Les introduced the champions, uh, Les rolled about the last two minutes of that tag match from the week before, and uh, it was good. I mean, the crowd was really into it. When we started it off like that, it started with a bang. The studio was on fire, and these two young stars were so excited, man, uh, asking for the return match, and uh, it all led perfectly in the way we're going to open this card today. So the Von Steigers were not impressed <laughs> as the studio audience <laughs> or as I was with the match. <laughs> They're there watching this last two minutes, and they were dragging a little bit. These boys pushed them. These young boys really pushed them. So they took over the commentary. Uh, rather than have Les say something that they didn't like, they just took it, pushed Les out of the way, and they started uh, talking about it. how they got a little bit embarrassed last week. They, they kind of lazily and maybe they lightly took their opponents. You know, mm -hmm. We don't do that very often, but a couple of young punks, we didn't expect them to be that good. And uh, you know, then they proclaimed themselves the best tag team on earth <laughs> because they were of German descent. When the short video ended, they told us to, to mark their words that these two young punks today, they're going to give them a shot on the title, are going to get hurt in this match. Les was kind of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He was kind of like astounded. And then they just got up and left. <laughs> they went to the ring. Actually, the, we're going to start the show with this return match. So Les kind of out of words, and uh, they, they, they take off to the ring, and uh, and they're going to, they called these young boys, uh, these so-called uh, American punks. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so the crowd was already mad with the Von Steigers by the time they got to the end of the ring and they got introduced. But when Smith and Kernoodle entered the studio, boy, that crowd just, it was like they just picked it up from where they ended last week. 
those fiery young boys, man, they made a pass around the studio and they shook hands and they were high-fiving the audience. It was pretty obvious that this show was off to a great start. And the bell rang. Young stars were on fire. I mean, those boys, they made a great tag team combination. Sometimes that just happened. You never, you can't plan those things. It just happens. And uh, they started making these tags, quick tags in and out. They were showing some great teamwork. The match went about 10 minutes of the 20-minute time limit. And then Kurt Von Steiger, he shot Don Carnoodle out on the studio floor, and then he charged over there toward Rip Smith, and the referee went with him. And Carl jumped down off the apron, and he grabbed Don Carnoodle, and he ran him into the steel post and uh, opened up a cut. And Carnoodle fought back. He finally got back in the ring. He was bleeding pretty bad, and he fought like crazy to get to his partner. And when he finally did, boy, the crowd exploded. And uh, Rip Smith, he tore into both of them. But then right away, they stopped him, shot him out on the floor, and one of them jumped out and posted him. Now both these young boys were bleeding, and the Von Steigers were punishing them, man. I mean, they were getting some tremendous heat at this point. And they pulled each of them up one time at least when they had them pinned uh, and didn't want to get the pin. They wanted to keep punishing them. The crowd was just getting madder and madder. So the Germans threw Smith out on the floor, and they double-teamed Carnoodle. They were just punching him and stomping him, and just it it was pretty much out of hand. They they weren't going to win. They weren't going to beat him. They weren't going to pin him. And from nowhere at that point, toward Tanaka and Mike Stallings, who was a great team there, they hit the ring to save the younger boys. I mean, they, you know, they, they needed some help. And the ref rang the bell, and the Germans retreated. They jumped out on the floor. The ref disqualified the, the young team, obviously, because of Stallings and Tanaka hitting the ring. And uh, he jumped out. He had to go out on the floor to raise the Germans' hand because they, were, they weren't going to come back in there with Tanaka and Stallings, who weren't tired and were ready to get it on. So it was hard to hear above the roar of the booze, man. I mean, uh, the fans were really, really into this match. So Tanaka and, and Stallings, they invited the Germans to come on back in. But, but the Germans were happy with what they'd done. They accomplished what they told us they were going to, and they went to the dressing room. First interview comes, the Germans came roaring back, man, to the set for the first interview. And the Stallings and Tanaka, their opponents for the next Friday night, who are wrestling them for the championship, they were in Studio B. And the Von Steigers took over before Les could even ask them anything. They started bragging about having done what they promised they were going to do. Uh, when the program started and they just continued to brag about being Germans and their heritage and all that. And uh, finally, when Stallings and Tanaka got their chance to talk, Stallings started first. And uh, Stallings got to where he's a pretty good interviewer. He spoke about the two young punks, uh, as the Von Steigers had called them. Uh, that was Canoodle and, and Rip Smith, and they were his best friends, which was really true. You know, when these young wrestlers traveled together all the time, they became absolutely best friends. And he said how he was a, a young punk, too. Uh-huh. You know, he said, and, <laughs> and I'm proud to be a young American punk. And he wanted to see what they were going to be able to do to him the next Friday night. So Tanaka, for the first time ever, actually spoke of words that you could pretty much understand. You know, and Tanaka's English had been getting better. He'd been been really tra- practicing his his stuff. So, 
and he was mad. He was upset by watching what the Germans did to the young boys, too. So, and he, it showed in his little bit of an interview. He said he didn't have much of an interview, but he did say a few words. And, and he said, as best I can remember, he, he, and you couldn't really understand him, he goes, uh, Germans bad, need big chop. You know? <laughs> so, so he made this chopping motion with his huge hands. And uh, when he chopped down on his hand, he screamed really loud. Wow. I mean, it was like he wasn't expecting it. I mean, the studio audience, they immediately screamed too, but they screamed because he scared them. He scared everybody in the TV audience. He scared the camera guys. They all jumped, man. He scared me. I was like, ah, dog, man, what the heck? And, uh, you know, and when you think about it, when you look at Tor Tanaka, he's a pretty scary human, human being, man. <laughs> it was a great way to open the show. So Ron Wright comes to the set with Les. He's in the next segment. He's patched up pretty good from the night before. They watched the lights-out match between him and Ronnie Garvin the night before where he ended up getting cut. And I was Ron's manager, and Big Bad John was Ronnie Garvin's manager in this match. And Ron Wright pointed out where Garvin and Big Bad John brought the Southeastern belt to the ring with them, but it wasn't a championship match. It was a lights-out match. It wasn't for the title. So, you know, he pointed out, though, that why did they bring that belt? And then it was pretty easy to see in this video that right away they used that belt extensively throughout the match. Uh, first, and bust Ron right open, and then finally at the end of the match, Big Bad John knocked him cold with it. And, uh, you know, as Ron was getting counted out in the video, he pointed out to Les, see, Ron, he's going after the belt and Big Bad John. So I end up chasing John around the ring. Turned out the big bad John's a pretty big coward, you know. I mean, he, he wasn't tough, you know. He looked tough, he talked tough, but he wasn't tough. So I chased him around, I caught him, uh, I whacked him around a little bit. I got the belt pretty easily. And uh, once they had won the match, once Garvin had pinned Ron right, uh, they left the ring. They were forced to leave the ring because I had the belt and and I was going to open them up with the belt. It's my turn to break some heads with the belt. <laughs> so Ron had the belt on the set with him. Uh, we kept it. Me and Ron took it back to the dressing room, and we kept it. So he explained then, uh, you know, that he had asked the Southeastern Wrestling Company for this special kind of match, and, and they'd allowed him uh, to recommend this return match, and they gave him his choice. You got the belt. Let's see what you want to do, how you want to do this to be able to give it back to him. So Ron told him he wanted to have a coal miners pole match. Uh, he suggested that Southeastern put the belt on a 20-foot tall pole, and the first wrestler to get it off the pole and be able to leave the ring with it was going to be the new champion. So fans in the studio love that idea. They loved everything Ron Wright did. didn't make any difference if Ron Wright suggested it, you know. And they gave him, obviously, a big hand when he left the set. So Ronnie Garvin and Big Bad John, they went to the ring for the next match. And it was another quick win for Ronnie Garvin. And then the same routine as usual. Garvin jumped off in the guy's throat from the top rope. The referee counted him out. John came in and, and hung him. And then he prepared the body for hell, man. <laughs> wow. And they went to the set for, with Les for the next interview. Ron Wright did his part of that interview from Studio B, kind of mm. like the first interview was done. John started out with a joke about this entire match 
you know, it was a farce. Uh, he, something they call it something like a farce. He, he said something about uh, only coal mining hillbillies living in this part of the country could see what this type of match would even want to see something match like this. You know? <laughs> and then he said that number one hillbilly Ron right there yes, thinks he has an advantage by putting the belt on a 20 foot pole uh, that both he and Garvin thought the belt was just a downright ugly championship belt. And he didn't know whether Garvin would even <laughs> try to get up there and get that ugly thing off the pole <laughs> to begin with, because it was a piece of junk. I mean, he really downed it. Right. About yeah. the, the how horrible it was. And he said something about it not making any difference because Ron Wright couldn't even climb the pole if he was the only guy in the ring with nobody there. He couldn't <laughs> climb up a 20-foot pole. So, <laughs> so he, he brought to everybody's attention that I wasn't going to be involved with in this match like I was the night before in that uh, Lights Out match. So no one was going to be there for Ron Wright this time to be able to lay their hands on me as John said, lay hands on me like Ron Fuller did the night before. So Ron Wright was going to be in real trouble the next Friday night. That's the point they were making. Ron, as usual, he listens to it, and by golly, he got himself fired up. He came out swinging, man. He asked Big, he had a question for Big Bad John right off the bat. He Something about, you ever seen a chisel? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he, so... That's a coal miners match, you know, and uh, I always had, he said, you know, these coal miner matches, they always got more to them than the match, the regular match does. He said, uh, he said, uh, Garvin nor Big Bad John never had yet to taste his chisel, and it was high time they did. (laughs) And uh, then without asking, and he didn't ask me before, I would have said, don't do that, Ron, but without asking me, he reached down in his pants pocket and he pulled out the chisel. (laughs) <laughs> he put it on his hand and he said, he said, I've been sharpening this up all night since you busted me up, boys. <laughs> you know, and he said, I'm, after I get home, you know, uh, I got sharpened her up real good. And he goes, I just wanted to be Southeastern champion again. And it's been too long since I was and that this is my kind of match. And these people out here in this crowd and the people going to be down there is my kind of people. And, uh, both Garvin and Big Bad John, you're not only going to get a good old Tennessee dog whooping, <laughs> you're going to get a bloody Tennessee dog whooping. <laughs> and uh, all the fans went nuts. I mean, Ron <laughs> had his way there, man. They loved him. and He was magic. He was absolute magic on television. So we're at the personality profile. I was on the profile. I'd been pre-recorded. We did it before the crowd was in the studio. And Les and I watched the very ending of that Terry Funk match. And uh, we watched the part where Ronnie Garvin jumped off the top rope on me three times, basically, at the end of that match. And we talked about my throat getting better and how difficult it had been to deal with being out again for the second time in just over a year. at had a collarbone the year before. We talked about the injury requiring me to have to give up my Southeastern TV trophy. By forfeit again, second time I'd done that in a year. And how bad Big John, uh, you know, how, how bad it was now that Big John was now the TV champion. So then we got the real point of my being on there. And and that was the fact that I was ready to get back in action the next Saturday. Oh. I had been managing. I had managed a couple of times. And now I felt like, you know, I, it's time for me to get in the ring. 
And Les says, Rana, I'm very happy to say that your first match back is you're going to have a shot to win your Southeastern TV championship back from Big Bad John next Saturday right here on TV. Cool. Well, got a big roar from the fans. uh, And you know why, Dave? It was rating, period. Well, you don't miss a thing, do you, Ryan? (laughs) (laughs) All right. It sounds like, and plus, it sounds like a great way to come back after an injury and on TV trying to regain the title, especially when you could push those numbers in that November TV ratings book a little. So you're kind of killing two birds or maybe even three. Yeah, yeah. Killing as many birds as I can, man. To be honest with you, you know, I just, uh, I wanted to really run those numbers up huge in November so that I could sit down in December with those television people and then be as happy about it as I am. And it was a huge part of every territory's future, Dave, not just in the relation to the crowds you were drawing, but especially the relationship you were developing with the TV stations that you were on. It was strictly business, man. And then those that fail to recognize the importance of doing something special in these rating periods failed to improve their TV audience and eventually their attendance at events. You know, it was a crucial part of wrestling success. What happened on your television shows? Well, just simply making the very best of every opportunity, every time you were on TV, every time setting up for the next big live event. So uh, another amazing job right there. All right. So what was next on this TV? Well, it was time for Jimmy Golden to shine, man. Uh, Jimmy was in a Texas death match the following Friday against Louis Tillette. Uh, He was starting to be pushed for a rare NWA World Junior Heavyweight Championship match. Didn't have many of those with Nelson Royal, uh, which was going to take place uh, the the last day of January 1977. Uh, This was the start of his push this day and on this program. And he went to the set with Les and he watched the bloody match that he had had the night before with him and Louis Toulette. It was a challenge match. They had had a problem the week before that. Then this, the night before, they had another problem. And now they're coming back in a Texas death match the following Friday night. The fans that gave Jimmy a great round of applause when he left. I mean, he said, this is a big match for me. I know that somewhere in the future, the near future, the world junior heavyweight champion is coming here. And uh, I know Nelson Royal and his reputation. I know he's a tremendous wrestler, but I want to be the guy to get that match. So he kind of set the tone and he set things up for almost two months later when that match is going to actually take place. So the next live match on the program was the new Gladiator for his first time on TV. And he had on the exact same outfit as the original Gladiator, Dick Steinborn, who had had been there for months and worn that outfit as the Gladiator. Fans knew Steinborn was hurt, obviously. They saw him carried out to the hospital. They knew he wasn't there for one week. They knew he wasn't around anymore, so they were all wondering, who is this guy pretending to be the gladiator? They knew it wasn't the gladiator, but they didn't have any answers for the question. So Les asked that question to ring announcer, Phil Rainey, who used to occasionally go to the set with Les when the matches were in progress and do commentary with Les. And, uh, you know, they kind of ask each other, who is this guy? <laughs> you know, and uh, Rainey says, I don't know. And Les says, well, we, we got to find out about this guy. Mm-hmm. So the new gladiator, he got a win. And guess what hold he got a win with? With Dick Steinborn's sleeper hold. 
So the it's the same finish Dick Steinborn had been using, right? right. So, so the gladiator wins again with the sleeper hole, but you know that everybody's going. But I don't think it's the same gladiator. Uh, and then the, there was a big difference because this gladiator was just downright mean, man. Uh, rather than a nice guy like Dick Steinborn was, this guy, he was a heel. There was no doubt what he was all about. And Les and Phil Rainey both noticed that real quick about, wow, the guy don't wrestle like Steinborn. What's going on here? You know, and when the match was over, Les tried to get him to come by the set. And, you know, and obviously Les couldn't ask him a bunch of questions. And the gladiator refused to. He said, no. He, you know. Waved him off, and he went right straight to the dressing room. Mm -hmm. But he did come right back with Louis Tillette and great Mephisto for the next interview. The gladiator Mephisto, the following Friday, is going to be facing Rip Smith and Don Carnoodle, the two young boys that got busted up on the show that day. And they're the same two young stars that have been uh, pretty much beat up big time by the Von Steigers. Yeah, yeah. Tillette focused, obviously, on his Texas death match, upcoming with Jimmy Golden. And then Les focused on the gladiator. He tried to find exactly how to, who this guy was. And the gladiator really had nothing to say, uh, but Mephisto had plenty to say. And he, he told Les right straight, he said, mind your own business. He says, this is the same gladiator that's always been here. You know? And he said that since he was recently dropped on his head in the pile driver and hurt, he had a huge change in personality. His head ain't right. <laughs> He's a totally different guy. Of course he though, looks different. He, he acts different. He wrestles different. So, you know, but he said, he's still the same Dick Steinborn. This Dick Steinborn. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, so that now, you know, he says after he's being hurt, hurt so badly by Louie and the Von Steigers and me, because they were the guys that hurt Dick Steinborn, he said, uh, the gladiator here, he's finally realized that he's on the wrong side to begin with, you know? <laughs> he had to come over here to the dark side with us <laughs> boys, right? You know, <laughs> he needs to be on the winning side of wrestling. He had his old spiel all together. And then, then Mephisto, he, he, go, he went on. He thanked the Von Steigers for what they'd done today by taking those two American punks and infidels, those American infidel punks, and and putting them putting them both to the hospital, sending them probably both to the hospital because he was going to be wrestling him and the gladiators going to be wrestling those two boys the next Friday night. So Les kept trying to speak to the gladiator. At one point, he said, "Dick, he said, he said hey, say something to me, Dick." <laughs> and Mephisto and Tillette, they just grabbed the gladiator and they walked him off the set. Les tried, "Hey, hey, hey, Les." <laughs> Still trying to find the answer. Who the heck is this guy? Uh, kind of starting to see what you're doing with the gladiator here, Ron. And I can also see how the fans were questioning themselves about who this guy was, too. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot more to come in this angle. I'm I'm starting to have some fun with it. It's going to be really good. And especially later on when Dick Steinborn does come back and there is another gladiator already there. So it's going to leave this whole angle. It's going to run for two, three months here, and it's going to leave a whole lot of fans shaking their heads, trying to figure out what the heck is going on here. So last match of the day was a second tag match. Don't usually do that, but there's two tag matches. We're in November. We're in rating period. We've had one wild one that was for the championship, and now we got Tor Tanaka and Mike Stallings, uh, and they'd been on earlier in the show. Went out there and, and tried to help Don Canoodle and Rip Smith in the championship match. So Tanaka and Stallings are in the ring. 
And I had a great heel team for him that day, Don and Al Green, who were big-time stars in the South, a great, great tag team combination. And the match was fantastic. It, it actually went long. I mean, it went long enough that the show was running out of time. And Les was trying to get the bell rung, but he couldn't get it done. And uh, we were going to not have the last interview in the show like we always had. So, you know, and all that uh, commotion is going on. And just as Les is on that phone that's set on the set and he's talking to me and he's going, what are we going to do? We're running out of time. And it was about that time that studio audience was just going crazy. And the, the Von Steiger brothers, they ended up uh, with all hope of the normal show ending about that time and out of the dressing room charged to knock on Stallings. And just as they had, uh, <laughs> you know, they, here comes the Von Steigers, man, uh, you know, and uh, Stallings and uh, Tanaka in the middle of a hard match anyway. And all of a sudden, the Von Steigers returned the favor on them that they had done to the Von Steigers in the first match. And uh, they attacked them. <laughs> At the end of the show, and the bell was ringing to stop the match. The crowd was going crazy. There was four heels beating up to knock on the stalling, and the, the show went off the air with sheer pandemonium, man. You know, and uh, we had never ended a Southeastern TV show that way up to that point. Are with all kidding? that going on, yeah, with all that, we'd never had one. We'd never had one right. where we didn't get in the last interview where yeah. the match didn't end, and they're, they're still fighting in the ring, and Les says, that's it. Uh, good night. See you later next week, whatever. And uh, the show was over. I thought it was a perfect ending for a TV rating month. I was and I thought, <laughs> I thought in, in my day, that's how all the shows ended. Because when the show is ending, everybody was yelling at home and on TV. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Everybody's household all around the Southeast is watching yeah. the show, which is a <laughs> lot of people. They're all screaming, man. They're just into it, just like that studio audience. Yeah. Well, that's that's pretty amazing because we saw a lot of shows that did end that way way back when. All right. New Super Studcast number 35. we got details on that coming up. We'll take a break, and we'll be back with more in moments right here. This Studcast will continue. Stay with us. The Stud has been doing Super Studcast for almost three years. Some on wrestlers, some on events and wars, and some as tributes to stars that pass. Super Studcast number 35 is another unique idea from the man with many. This one is the first ever interactive with live questions from fans worldwide at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. This Ask the Stud special Super Studcast number 35 tests Ron's ability to answer questions about about everything wrestling. Here fans not only ask their questions, but relate in a personal manner with the stud. Part one has fans from across America and ends up in Australia. Wrestling history. For those who want answers is here at tmstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. More than two hours of maybe the best super studcast yet for only $2.99. No doubt the best deal in wrestling. David Summers back again on another Studcast with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. As we get ready to resume our story, don't forget TNStud.com. TNStud.com. It's where you start your Christmas shopping for the ultimate wrestling fan on your list. Autograph photos of the Stud, T-shirts in black and blue, autograph copies of Ron's new novel called Brutus, plus an incredible and historical DVD collection 
is available there, loaded with matches and interviews from the Continental and Southeastern Wrestling Days. There are dozens of matches, hours of entertainment right there. TNstud.com is the stud's home on the internet. Okay, so we're back in the saddle, and we get them up to speed. Where are we headed to now, Ron? Well, let's give them the results of that Friday card of November 12th, 1976. Uh, opening match was Don Carnoodle and Rip Smith, and they beat the Gladiator and the Great Mephisto. The two young boys, they were both had patches on their head, uh, but they're in there fighting, and uh, they had a great match. Uh, Jimmy Golden beat Louis Tillette in the Texas Death Match. Tor Tanaka and Mike Stallings in the third match, won by disqualification over the Von Steiger brothers in a two-out-of-three-fall Southeastern Tag Championship match. The Von Steigers retained the titles because they lost by disqualification. The main event was won by Ronnie Garvin and Big Bad John over Ron Wright in the Southeastern Championship match built around the pole. Uh, the belt was on top of the 20-foot pole, and the first man to bring it down and leave the ring with it was champion. And and I want to describe a little bit of the end of that match because it was very hot, hot finish. Uh, Ron, he was the finally one that climbed the pole and he got the belt. But right before he started up the pole, the referee had gotten knocked out of the ring and was hurt. He didn't get in for probably three minutes. Mm. And Ronnie Garvin was also down at that time. So it was just Ron by himself to climb the pole. And Big Bad John standing out there on the floor, no referee, no Ronnie Garvin. And he figured he'd roll right up into the ring. This is the perfect time for him to do his thing, right? So John waited. He watched Ron Wright. He slowly climbed up there, got the belt off the top of the pole, and he lowered himself down that pole, but he had his back to to Big John. And, uh, you know, when Ron got to the top rope, his back was still to Big John. And, uh, Ron just stepped down the three ropes to the mat and didn't realize that Big Bad John was right there behind him just waiting on him. Mm. So John just backed up to Ron right now, and he just reached around and wrapped his hands around Ron's chin, and he hoisted him right up in, oh, his, no. in his hangman's hole. <laughs> wow. I mean, Ron just stepped right into it. Ron dropped the belt in the corner there, obviously, and boy, uh, <laughs> Big Bad John. Uh, strolled him out to the middle of the ring, and he bounced him up and down on his back about two or three times, which is really painful when you're in that hold when somebody does that to you. And about that same time, Ronnie Garvin's getting up, but the referee's still out of the ring. So John just dropped Ron Wright. He left the ring, and about that time, the referee's trying to crawl back in. And Garvin slams Ron Wright in the middle of the ring. He went up the top rope, and by golly, he flew again, man. And he planted that knee in Ron Wright's throat. And he and John started to leave. All he had to do was pick up the belt and leave the ring. It was over. They started to leave, you know, because they didn't have to have a three count. It wasn't necessary. All they had to do was leave the ring with the belt. But then they stopped and they went back to the ring. Ron Wright's still laying there. He's he's on his back and out. And uh, they got in the ring and uh, Garvin got on top of Ron Wright. He told the referee, he said, count him out. And the referee refused. He said, no, I'm not going to count him out. You know, you've already won the match. So uh, Ron's still, he's pretty much out. He's pretty much unconscious. And the referee refused to count him out. So Big John just got down there. Ron Garvin got on top of him. Big John counted him out. And then he put Ron's legs together and he crossed his arms over his chest. And, you know, he prepared him for hell, I guess. (laughs) And and they left. They left. 
for the dressing room. But when they left for the dressing room, wow, the fans were waiting on them. These guys really had tremendous, really, truly intense heat at this point. And they had a real hard time getting into the dressing room. Wow. All right. I believe you said earlier in the show you were going to give the attendance and the payoffs for not only Knoxville, but every city for the entire week of November 12, 1976. What was it like? Uh, yeah, you're right again, Dave. Let's start with Monday of that week, okay? So we were in Hazard, Kentucky. On that Monday night, we had 3,000 fans. On Tuesday night, we were in the weekly town, the one that we ran weekly other than Knoxville, which was Johnson City, Tennessee. We had 2,800 fans. That was just about all that building would hold. Wednesday, we were in Jamestown, Tennessee, which is on the Cumberland Plateau between Knoxville and Nashville, Tennessee, Mm -hmm. Uh, up there on probably 4,000 feet up, beautiful part of the country, in a high school gym. It held about 2,500 fans, and that's what we had in there. Uh, Thursday, we were in Big Stone Gap, Virginia. We had 2,000 fans in a small high school there. Uh, Friday, we were in Knoxville. We had 4,000 fans. That's all the uh, Jacobs building would hold. It was pretty well packed. And on Saturday night, we went to Harlan and we drew 2,900, almost 3,000 fans in Harlan, Kentucky. So the total attendance for the week was just over 17,000 fans. Gross for the week was about $51,000 for the week. The total payoff was about 15, a little over $15,000 for the week. Refs made about 600, bottom guys made about 800, and the top guys made about $1,200. Now, I don't have what that value is in today's money. It's good, though. <laughs> I can I can guess that it's in excess of $5,000 or so. Wow, you know? yeah, yeah. They had a, just a phenomenal week. And you got to bear in mind that this wasn't the best time of the year for wrestling. We're getting close to Christmas, and things usually started to get a little uh, fade back a little bit because people are going to spend money on Christmas, and they're Interest is in something else about that time of year. So that's a tremendous week for that time of year. No doubt. And a couple of things. So all the territory or all those towns that you just mentioned, every one of those towns could see your TV every week, right? Absolutely. That TV went out about 150 miles from Knoxville in all directions. That's that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's a booming station. It had a tremendous signal. And it goes back to what you, you a, a couple of, a number of weeks ago, you were talking about Bob Armstrong, how Bob said he knew that he could make some really good money with, and all your guys really. So they were each making, they were making probably as well as any wrestler in the nation at the time. I'm just, I'm just guessing Yeah. on a weekly basis. Yes. Well, we were approaching numbers as big as some of the larger territories at this point, like Florida and Georgia established territories. Mm-hmm. that had big cities and huge populations. Hell, in Florida, you had Miami, you had Fort Lauderdale, you had West Palm Beach, yeah. you had Tampa, you had Jacksonville, you had Tallahassee, you had Orlando. Yeah. I mean, it just went on and on and on. We got Knoxville and mm-hmm. Harlan, Kentucky, and Hazard, Kentucky, and, uh, <laughs> and Big Stone Gap, Virginia. High I school mean, gymnasiums, yeah. And high school gyms. We're not yeah. supposed to be doing what's happening in 1976. <laughs> it's never happened before. And uh, well, we're getting around all over the country about what the heck are they doing there, man? But, so, but, but your guys are pretty happy. 
oh man, uh, happy cruise. I always had happy cruise because we always seemed to do business after we got these territories that were down and we got them up to where they needed to be. We always had probably the happiest cruise in America. Guys came, they loved our dressing rooms because you go into some of these big time territories and there was a lot of animosity. There was a lot of egos in those rooms. That didn't happen in Southeastern or Continental or USA because they all were going to make good money and they knew it and there was no ego. There was no place for ego. You didn't need it. And so it was always a great place for wrestlers to come and work. Did it get easier over time once you kind of had a pattern or a plan set up for all of these these different towns? Everybody started to know what to expect as you went along. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, when when we first started, we're running the same little towns, but we were do- instead of drawing 3000 in Harlem, we were drawing 800. Yeah. You know, I mean, you have to build them. But once you get them built and these guys know that they're going to make money, they know what to expect when they get there. They want to see these towns get bigger every time. Their payoffs, they want their payoffs to grow. And we just kept trying to expand as much as we could. Summertime we look forward to because we got into football stadiums instead of these high school gyms. And now we put 5,000 people out there. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I mean, you really had quite the moneymaker. I mean, it it sounds like you were just on a little gold mine right there in in a coal country area, sort of. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, nobody had ever seen it like that. Nobody ever did it before or since after that time frame. Wow. All right, Ron. So you've done everything today that you said you would cover. So I guess it's time to get that cold drink and we'll take a seat under the learning tree. What was our question again and who sent it to you this time? Our question today came from a fan named uh, Adam Thompson. And he asked, uh, other than regular type championship matches for your belts, did you ever have other type matches that involved the belts or unusual things happen to your belts? So I guess it's pretty clear, obviously, after today's training, or why I picked this question for today's learning tree. Um, you know, Mr. Thompson, you know, he asked the perfect question at the perfect time. This question uh, seemed to have two questions to it. And the first being, did I ever have matches for belts that wasn't a regular type of championship match? Well, obviously. We talked about one already here today in this stud cast, uh, Mr. Thompson. And uh, the main event in this this stud cast was a championship match in which the winner won by climbing a 20-foot pole, bringing down the Southeastern Championship belt, and leaving the ring with it. And I don't know if it was the first time in wrestling that that had been done. And it might have been. I'm not sure that it wasn't. But almost everything since 1900 had been done in the sport of professional wrestling by 1976. I can tell you there wasn't a lot of things you could do that hadn't been done. I know Southeastern had never had a match like that coal miners pole match in which you put the belt up on there. We had done one similar in the summer of 76, Don Carson and I, with his glove. I'd taken his glove off and we put the glove on top of the pole. This time it was a championship belt. So, uh, Mr. Thompson, uh, I'm going to answer your second question now. You asked if any unusual things Uh, happened to my belts the answer is definitely yes to that one and uh, this is a great story here i I love this story as a matter of fact ronnie garvin was going to do something with the southeastern championship belt uh, in the near future from this studcast that we're talking about 
that's going to make history in Knoxville and throughout that part of the country. Uh, since Garvin had won the belt on October 1st, 1976, when he arrived, first week in the territory from the gladiator, Dick Steinborn, there had been rumors that even like the Southeastern Heavyweight Championship belt, word was that Garvin didn't talk much about it at that time. Uh, you know, he didn't say much. He said nothing, basically, in interviews. But he didn't like the belt. He thought it was the ugliest belt he'd ever seen. <laughs> so when Big Bad John arrived in Southeastern as Garvin's manager, he started talking about it. In fact, in today's program, John got into the belt. That, you know, Ronnie Garvin may not even go up there and get it. It's a hunk of junk, right? You know, it's, it's, it's <laughs> crap. It's a horrible belt, right? So on this very studcast, John revealed the fact that both he and Garvin hated the cheap belt, they called it. <laughs> the Southeastern belt, and they didn't even like to carry it around. So I milked that fact. So once I heard that, you know, and they started saying it, and, and I had Garvin do something that was going to make him famous in the territory. Mm. So on the TV of December 18th, 1976, which is just about one month ahead of our show today in the future here, Big Bad John is for the first time going to let Ronnie Garvin talk on television. And when he does, Ronnie's going to tell everybody what he intends to do with the Southeastern Championship belt. Uh, Garvin, in his deep French-Canadian accented voice, mm -hmm. he told fans that on the following Saturday, Christmas Day of 1976, at exactly 10 o'clock in the morning, he was going to throw the Southeastern Heavyweight Championship belt off the Gay Street Bridge in downtown Knoxville into the Tennessee River. <laughs> All right. The <laughs> <laughs> so fans in the studio, when he said it, they were shocked. They were like, oh, is he serious? No, they, you know, it's a, hey, why? So you could see when the cameras panned at the audience, you got their reaction, you know. <laughs> the, you could see their faces when they got this news. So I'm sure the fans at home were just as shocked about it. So something like this had never been done before in this part of the country. Never been done there. Uh, it had actually been done previously. Uh, Bobby Shane, first time I ever saw or heard about anybody doing it, Bobby Shane threw the Florida championship belt off uh, Courtney Campbell Bridge. Uh, maybe not Courtney Campbell. It might have been Howard Franklin. Yeah. Or the Gandhi Bridge. There's three yeah. bridges in Tampa. Yeah. But he threw it into Tampa Bay. So <laughs> If we had a computer back in those days, and if uh, social media was big in those days, this deal would have gone viral. I'm telling you what's going to happen here would have absolutely gone viral. So the Knoxville newspapers, they picked up the story. It's a Saturday. On Sunday, they write a deal. They say, hey, this wrestler says he's going to throw the, the Southeastern Championship belt off the Gay Street Bridge next uh, on Christmas Day, 10 o'clock in the morning. Well, you know. When I saw that in the paper, it was instant proof to me that we were getting somewhere, man. We no were doubt. becoming big-time news in that part of the country. So the following Saturday, it was a really cold Christmas morning. I remember it. Wind was blowing really hard. And it was absolute bedlam on that huge four-lane bridge, about 100 feet above the river. <laughs> and so Garvin and the film crew, we'd sent film crew on purpose, obviously. This is a great opportunity to see something that's never been done, probably never going to happen again. And a film crew went with him from Channel 10, and they arrived about 15 minutes before 10 o'clock. 
they couldn't get to the bridge. They had to park in downtown Knoxville and walk to the bridge because <laughs> traffic was stopped for miles. And both are you kidding? Yeah, I mean, On weather, Christmas morning, Christmas <laughs> morning, ten o'clock. The traffic was just blocked for miles. Oh my uh, god! You know. And and fans had begun. They started to be together on the bridge. They'd got out of their cars and they started to walk out on the bridge. And finally, they got to the point there were so many people on the bridge that police couldn't stop any more of them from coming on. Yeah. They just stopped the cars instead. And so wow. the traffic was back way up. And uh, by 10 a.m., the Gay Street Bridge was entirely full of people. Holy it was a mass of bodies on the that's bridge. That's unbelievable. Wow. <laughs> to see this wrestler throw this belt in the river. The police, when Garvin got there and the film crew, they had to surround him because he's a heel and they the crowd's mad. They they want to kill him, man. You know, hey, they're cussing him and they want to they attack him. Yeah. And the police got to protect him. And they try to get him out to the center of the bridge. And, he, you know, it's a long deal. They, they're shoving their way through this big, huge crowd. It was a remarkable scene. So he finally pushes his way over to the side of the bridge. And there wasn't just a huge crowd on the bridge, Dave. There were boats in the water below <laughs> trying to catch the belt when he threw it. <laughs> you know? So amongst all this turmoil, he's at the edge of the bridge. He yells loud as he can, goodbye to southeastern wrestling trash. And he hurled a silver belt, man, as far as he could out into the river. And no one caught it. You know, the, the camera crew filmed it hitting in the water down there. It splashed into the Tennessee River, and it was never seen again. But it was front page the next morning in the paper. Wow. Every radio station in that part of the country. And, <laughs> you know, and as you might have expected, Dave, for me, not to miss an opportunity, mm -hmm. it was all right there for me. Southeastern Wrestling was going to be filmed at 12 o'clock, and it's 10 o'clock. So two hours later, we start filming the show. We've got the video of him throwing the belt off the bridge, man. We got it on our show that day, two hours after it actually happened. So that was just another one of those uh, angles that we did, man, that went in the books of Southeastern Wrestling. That cost you a total of zero dollars and drew an incredible crowd and, and the best publicity that, that you could have. It was amazing. Every radio station, <laughs> every newspaper, they wanted interviews. Wow. It, we were already on fire. It just lit things up even bigger. Man, what a sight. The mobbed bridge, the police, the boats below trying to catch the belt. No wonder Southeastern in Knoxville was just absolutely incredible compared to any other market anywhere in the entire USA. That is awesome stuff right there, Ron. All right, on Facebook, two different pages are there. Just like and follow each page at Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud, and author Ron Fuller Welch for his Brutus page. As well, on Twitter, Ron Fuller Welch. Instagram, Ron Fuller Welch there too. Super Studcast number 35, Ron's first interactive Ask the Stud questions from the fans on tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Part one is now available and over two hours long. Really a remarkable show. What do you what do you say about this thing, Ron? A good, great job on it. Oh, man, uh, this one, this is, I think, maybe one of the best, maybe the best Super Stud cast so far. It's really, truly amazing. We had the opportunity, and uh, and Lou, who produces this program with me, Lou and I, 
we had a great time talking to actually talking to fans and having them ask me the question and having conversations with them. We talked to people from all over America. It's unbelievable. Different states. And our last person in this part one is in Australia. We speak to an Australian at the end of all this. So, uh, you know, it, it's really a remarkable program. I'm really proud of this one. And I hope fans have opportunity. It's really something. And questions were unbelievable in, in every direction. Part two, I expect, is going to be another two hours. This thing is probably going to be four hours long. Really, really something uh, that fans, I think, are going to really enjoy. That's awesome. Another great stud cast this week, Ron. Where are we headed to next week? Well, we're going to obviously do another today's training. We're going to educate our fans on exactly how old school wrestling worked and why it worked. And uh, we had a couple of little examples today about throwing a belt off the bridge. And well, we do. We did some crazy things back in those days. And uh, we just really, really, uh, we, we did remarkable business that I don't think they'll see any, any more in wrestling like the crowds that we were drawing back in those times. We're looking at the Knoxville matches from the week before Thanksgiving on the next show, uh, Thanksgiving in 1976. We're doing another ratings. Uh, it's rating period for TV, and we're doing another great television show. And I'm scheduled to get back in the ring and wrestle for my forfeited Southeastern TV championship against Big Bad John. And uh, we will have another learning tree that's going to also provide, obviously, some great questions to be answered. Thanks, everybody out there, for your support, for these studcasts, for, for all the years that I've been doing them, and to those thousands of new fans that just continue to join us week after week. I want everybody to please take care of yourselves and others out there, and may God bless us all. God bless you too, Ryan. Thank you. This is David Summers saying thanks for supporting this studcast, and until next week, reminding you that Ron Fuller's studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. 